Hi everyone, welcome back to the Ask Mike show and I'm here with a very special guest today. We have Adam Cox joining me. Adam, thanks for coming on. More than welcome. A pleasure to be on your show. And Adam is a business owner, a hypnotist and the top rated podcaster of the modern mindset and the hypnotist. We're going to dive into a lot of mental topics and hypnotism. But Adam, share a bit of a, a one or two minute intro in terms of how you got started what were things like for you growing up sort of take us to when you got started business-wise yeah so for, for me it was a, a strange um, story in the sense that when I left home to start university to do a psychology degree um, a couple of things happened that massively increased my anxiety and and the short version of the story is that for about um, half of my first year at university I was hiding away in a room. I was a recluse. And just the idea of leaving my tiny one bed apartment filled me with anxiety to the extent that my heart would be out of my chest. And, you know, it was a weird time because I, I was ambitious and I, I felt I was smart, um, but I couldn't even leave my apartment. So it forced me to do a lot of learning and a lot of study to figure out what was going on in my head, why I was feeling so much anxiety. And, and that led me to make certain changes to the extent that not only did I deal with the very severe anxiety that I had, but I kind of overcompensated. And it meant that several phobias that I had at that time, you know, I had a social anxiety disorder. So people was my fear. Um, public speaking was a fear. Heights was my fear. And one by one, I got over all of my phobias. And then, you know, when I started in the, in the realm of media, so I worked at a radio station, then a PR agency at the age of 23, um, I was willing to back myself and launch my own PR agency, uh, which is, you know, many people said it's a brave thing to do at the age of 23. But for me, I kind of thought, well, look, if I fail at the age of 23, I've got more than enough time to start again and to, and to learn. And that business that I set up at the age of 23, I'm still running now. Um, and, right. it, and it generates, um, you know, turnover in excess of a million pounds, you know, when one of the top uh, broadcast agencies in the in the country working with massive brands but that came from me fixing the initial anxiety because I kind of figured out how anxiety works I kind of then felt well all fear is temporary and and, and that's helped me to do a lot of different things more recently um, I you know when you have that kind of inner voice that kind of intuition you know about five six years ago I was constantly thinking about psychology constantly thinking about hypnosis and I thought, right, there's got to be a reason behind that. So I actually qualified as a clinical hypnotherapist. And then I've gone on to have a very successful practice in Harley Street. I've worked with celebrity CEOs, even um, members of the royal family. And alongside that, got lots of media coverage uh, and now launched um, two podcasts. So that, that's the short version of the story. But it came from me having to, to fix my own anxiety. That, that's really where it all started. It's interesting how often that tends to come up. Like we, we help ourselves, we change something or improve something. And then we think, okay, is there more to it? Is there another level? Because I had a sort of similar experience than yourself. You know, we try to improve ourselves and then go, let's then help others. Some, some people don't really have that, but some people do. Talk us through what your your thought process was behind, because some people do literally just do things for themselves. 
which is fine. They've got other ways of, you know, supporting other people. I'm not saying that's a selfish thing at all, but what was your thought process around going from improving yourself, but then going and back and trying to help others with it? Yeah. I mean, there, there was a, a big gap between that. You know, it was, it was about 15 years right. um, where, you know, for a while I was quite happy building my own business, you know, having the money from that business enable me to invest in properties, invest in the stock market. So, you know, financially I wanted to work just on me, you know, and, and the idea that I was fixed in, in year one, no, you know, I'm, I'm constantly working on myself, constantly improving different areas. But when I became a clinical hypnotherapist, I was in a fortunate position in the sense that I'd had 15 years of, of running a successful business. So I understood about marketing, I understood about sales, I understood about branding. And that meant that I decided to specialize in three different areas of hypnosis to let the market decide what they had more of a need for. Um, so throughout my life, I've had various addictions, uh, luckily never hard drugs, but I've still been addicted to things. So I thought, right, addictions, I'll specialize in that. So I had a brand called Addiction Experts. Um, I mentioned my own anxiety and phobias and I got through those and I thought, right, okay, I'll have a brand spe specifically around phobias. And then also I noticed that one of the, the biggest um, things was, that was impacting the UK um, was obesity. And, you know, the, the medical model, um, you know, one of the recommended NHS ways if diets don't work is to uh, recommend bariatric surgery where you, you mutilate someone's internal organs to help them lose weight. You know, for me, I didn't agree with that idea. I said, well, look, it's a behavior. People are eating certain food. If you change what happens in their head, then you can change the decisions and the behaviors that they make. So I had these three hypnosis brands. And then what I wanted the, the public to do or the market was to decide what they had more of a need for. Um, and it was clearly, although I've worked with a lot of addicts, uh, it was definitely phobias and, and weight loss that was the majority of my, my clients. So for, for me, it was about being willing to do whatever people wanted me to do. And, 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 and I had a connection in these different areas. Um, so that's kind of how it came about, but, but equally, uh, I, I kind of thought about it, not so much as a job because I didn't want another business, even though it turned out to be a business. So the way I sold it to myself is that this is a hobby that I'm willing to do for free. But you know, when you've run a business for a while, you figure out how to monetize stuff, how to kind of elevate your brand positioning. Um, so now it's a lucrative hobby that I have in terms of hypnosis, which, you know, bizarrely makes more than some people's primary income. But yeah. for me, it's, it's a hobby. Well, that's, that's interesting that you say that it started out as going at it from the customer's angle, coming at it from whatever they wanted first and just doing whatever you felt you wanted to do. So it's interesting that you, you brought that up. Okay. Is hypnosis just the power of suggestion then talk us through a little bit about what hypnosis is what's the because i listened to something about hypnosis the other day and they said no we can't we can't do it over the radio in case we hypnotize everyone that's listening bit of a I imagine that's an inside joke amongst you lot but what 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 is hypnotism what's the the process yeah so i mean it comes from two different schools of thought one suggestion is a, is a key element um but the problem is when you suggest things to people um at a conscious level quite often you've got certain barriers um that will deflect that 
So a lot of time people trying to lose weight, for example, would say, yeah, I really shouldn't have that biscuit or I should stop having processed food or I need to eat less. Um, and then when the food's in front of them, they, they guzzle it down. So, you know, suggestions are one thing, but there's, there's this idea of a trance state. So some hypnotherapists believe in a trance or a state. Other people don't believe in a, in a unique state. And they just say, well, look, you know, we, you know, we have the ability to kind of go into the unconscious or, or not. And they don't really call it a trance. For me, I don't really care. I just, I just follow what works. And, and what works for me is that humans have the ability to observe things that are real. So if you're hearing my voice, that's not a voice in your head. That's my actual voice. So you've got the ability to detect external uh, senses. You can see things, you can hear things, you can feel things. Equally, you can do that inside your own mind. You know, you've got the ability. If I said, what does the, what, you know, how, how does the happy birthday song go? You could then actually sing that inside your own head without hearing it in real life. So that's an internal thing. And for me, when people start going inside and they primarily are focused on their internal experience rather than their external experience, I consider that a trance state. Now it might be a light trance state, but it's still a trance state. So it's not something special. It's something that as humans, we go into all the time, like anyone listening to this, that drives, they have had the experience of driving a car completely on autopilot. We're talking, they've traveled hundreds of miles and they're not consciously driving the car. They can't remember indicating, they can't remember changing lanes, they can't remember changing gears, and yet they're driving that car. And they're probably daydreaming while they're doing it. Now that sounds very dangerous, okay? But here's the thing, the unconscious has the ability to do complex things completely on autopilot. So a trance is just like that. Now hypnotherapy uses the combination of suggestion, um, elicitation, you've got to figure out what's going on, and this kind of unconscious state to facilitate changes. And I, I compare it to illusion, illusionists. You know, if you've got a very good illusionist, the audience that watch that, it looks like magic, as it should do for a good illusionist. It's not magic. You know, the illusionist can break down exactly what they're doing to perform that, that act of magic. But the audience, it seems magic. And hypnosis is a little bit like that. You know, and, and I like to have an, an element of mystery. If I explained exactly what I'm doing, the language patterns I'm using, the, you know, the, the way that I'm eliciting from them and then using certain tonality or certain questions or distracting their conscious while I'm using an embedded command, it takes all of the, the mystery and the, and the enjoyment out of it. Effectively, when a change takes place, and, and I've had people with lifelong phobias you know, get over their phobia in, in under an hour or two. Now to someone watching that, literally it looks magical because it's like, how can someone have this for like decades and then it's gone? It looks magical. It isn't magical. You know, it, it's very specific things in a particular order that take place. But I think that's why hypnosis has this kind of air of, of kind of, you know, it, it, it feels a little bit kind of spooky, a little bit kind of, weird a little bit strange but very powerful and i think it's because it can create changes so quickly that from the outside in it just looks magic does it ever does it ever happen because you mentioned things like driving and you mentioned 
you know, how some people do it on autopilot and that activates a certain part of the brain that we don't need to focus on and all that sort of stuff. Is it a sort of a way of getting in involved in that, using the power of, of language and I don't know, maybe you are trying to distract people so that they don't have to focus on it. Meanwhile, you're sort of edging in suggestions, that sort of thing. Because if you think about think about how how we tend to, because when I, when I first started to learn how to drive, I was I was awful. I didn't pass my driving test first time, um, and it's based on the fact that I was focusing on too much. So I was worrying about where all the indicators were, where the steering wheel had to be and where I put my feet and all that. So I haven't got to a point where enough of it was unconscious to the point where I could focus on driving well. You know, that whole sort of once enough of it has become habit or autonomous or whatever it is, that's a sign that, you know, things are progressing. You can focus on other things because the driving element is a bit more of a habit than than, than anything else. How, how would how would hypnotists get involved in that? Do you sort of implant yourself in that habit to change it? And because it's subconscious, they don't realise that they've changed it until they just sit back and go, "Ooh, that was different than what it was before." H- how does that sort of stack up to the sort of thing that you do? Yeah. So, so there's actually two different questions there. One is how do you induce the the trance state? Okay, and that that would be called an induction. So you've got rapid inductions and actually things like confusion or things like, um, you know, some of these kind of um, stage, you know, kind of preachers, they'll use rapid induction. So it was literally kind of pushing their head forward, you know, dropping them backwards. That can induce a trance state. Um, It just kind of, it messes up their brain patterns very briefly. And while they're in that hyper- you know, confused state, they're very, you know, suggestible at that particular time. Um, and, and stage hypnotists do it, you know, they'll, they'll make a, a jolted movement and then say sleep. And then, you know, because they're following that suggestion, they do it. Um, but equally, you've got different varieties of, of inductions as well, but effectively it's getting them to the point where are they willing to do the kind of things um, that you're asking them to do? And, and normally you have certain suggestibility tests and, and, you know, quite often, I'll do it by checking in with them and saying, look, if you can now see this in your mind's eye, let me know by nodding your head. If you can imagine this, let me know. So I'm checking in, but also they are suggestions. I'm checking that they're following those suggestions. In terms of the, the element of change, um, you're absolutely right. When, when people are on autopilot, they don't know what they're doing. You know, there are certain things that are so much easier to do unconsciously than consciously. Um, and, and, that, and I would say speaking is one of them. You know, we're not, we're having a conversation here, but if I try to write out everything that I intended to say and then memorize that consciously, this would be a very jolty, awkward conversation. But, you know, I'm just allowing my unconscious to communicate whatever words happen to come out of my mouth without any conscious involvement. And that makes for a better conversation. There are so many things that are better unconscious than conscious. You know, if, if I said, right, from now on, you can only blink if you consciously choose to. Um, you're not going to blink anywhere near enough, quite frankly, you know, is, is blinking and breathing is one of those things. You just want to trust your unconscious mind to do it. Um, so it's difficult to change certain things, but what, what you do is you want to, what's known as interrupt the pattern. So if someone has a, a habitual, um, habit, for example, and that might be snacking, for example, you want to reach the point where they're in that kind of automatic pattern 
completely mess that up by normally layering a very intense emotion onto it. And then that messes up the pattern enough to they become suggestible for an alternative pattern. And then you can say, well, like going forward, you know, realize that you do have that choice. And that choice is that you can make yourself fatter, you can make yourself less healthy. Or if you decide to have a future full of confidence, self-esteem and happiness and energy, perhaps you'd want to choose other things. So you're, you're kind of, you're giving the suggestions contextually very much dependent on, you know, breaking that automatic pattern and then giving an alternative choice. And that's really what it is. You know, you know, certain unconscious things are very helpful. It's helpful to blink and breathe and walk without thinking. It's not that useful if whenever you feel stressed or anxious, you suddenly eat half a tub of ice cream. That's not a useful automatic pattern. And yet so many people, and it might be ice cream for one person, might be cigarettes for someone else, might be alcohol for someone else, you know, but these patterns over time can be very detrimental and, and, and ruin lives and, and shorten lives as well. So there's a lot at stake at, at actually doing it right. It might even be, you know, one person having three people's worth of ice cream. You just, you just never know, right? It's a ice cream for three, but it's, it's all for me. It's yeah, all. totally. So many people use that. <laughs> you mentioned like um, suggestibility as well. Now, I'm aware that, you know, some people have a higher suggestibility than others, which is something that, that you implied before. Is it a test that we could do? Because I've seen a couple of tests, uh, like mostly jokes, that smart people tend to play on people like me to prove how suggestible I am, right? I've, I've saw one where um, if you hold your hands out and close your eyes, and then you gradually be suggested that, like, one hand is holding something heavy, and the other one has got like a balloon strapped to it and your, your arms end up sort of one higher than the other just through the power of suggestion. That's one that I've, I've personally seen and done. Um, my hands moved a little bit and then I saw someone where their arms were all over the place. It was like, whoa, that's a bit weird. So is that, is that a test that, that people can do or do you have something else that people listening can, can take away to figure out themselves? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say... One of the, 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 the key things is to look at your experience. Um, so if you're the kind of person that, you know, if someone says, oh, do you mind just holding this for a second? And you're the kind of person that holds it. Well, then that means you're suggestible. You know, if you followed the lockdown rules that various governments have dished out by the letter of the law, you're suggestible. You know, a lot of people would be questioning those and say, yeah, I'm going to treat it like guidance, but I'm not going to follow it like a slave. I'm going to use my own intelligence to make rational decisions based on my lifestyle. Then you're less suggestible. Um, you know, for, for me, um, I'm, I'm not that suggestible because I'm, I'm a cynic and I question everything. So, so for me, it, it, it's kind of a weird dynamic in the sense that I can make suggestions. And what I figured is that it really comes down to tonality. If, if I said to you, you know, do you want to, do you want to sit down? You'd be like, well, probably not. If I'm not sit down, you know, it, it's, it's a weird thing, you know, so yeah, it, 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 it tends to be the kind of thing where um, you'll know from your own experience, if you're suggestible or if you're not. Um, but scientists over the years have, have proven that if someone suggests something to you and they look authoritarian, if they look like a doctor or if they look like a police officer, then you'll follow that suggestion more than if it looks someone with low status, you know? So it's not just how suggestible the individual is. It's the other dynamics that are also taking place. So for me as a hypnotist, um, you know, I tend to 
uh, wear a three-piece suit and a tie because I know that when people look, you know, like they're wearing, you know, very expensive clothes, people follow suggestions easier. When they see certificates on the wall or if they go to my website and see my qualifications, which are all genuine, they tend to have more faith in the person that's doing the hypnosis and then be more, you know, responsive to suggestions. For me, I'm just obsessed about getting results for my customers and clients. So anything that I can do to increase the likelihood that positive suggestions that would help them. And, and by the way, it's not just hypnotists that use suggestions, con men use suggestions as well. You know, it, it's they're, they're, the principles are so effective that they can be used powerfully to improve people's lives, but also to ruin people's lives. Mm. You know, it might be a controlling partner, for example, that is also using suggestions. And, you know, gaslighting, for example, is a form of hypnosis. If you've got a controlling partner that says, no, you're going crazy, it's just in your head, and you believe that, well, then you can be more manipulated. So you've got to have a, a lot of diligence in choosing the kind of people that you work with, because if you choose the wrong person to work with, in the same way that if you choose the wrong partner to be with, that can actually be not a positive thing, but a negative thing. Um, but it's all suggestion. Yeah, it's interesting that you you brought up the fact that it's like a process or a set of tools, if you will, that some people can use for negative and positive things as well. Do you ever find that this is something that I see sometimes, not often, but sometimes, is that people use it in different situations whether it's social situations business situations and I found because when I was learning sort of you know the kind of I think it was things are on how the brain works and all those sorts of things there was a part of me that was thinking I feel like it's very hard to not use this now <laughs> it's very hard to not use it for other people's benefit but then it's almost like if you hear something backwards and uh, it's a different thing altogether, you can't unhear it. You can't unknow it. And I found that quite difficult when I first started to learn these things because it was like, I, I instantly changes my actions because you want to improve the outcome. You want to improve or enhance the, the situation like yourself with the suits and everything. Once you realize that, oh, depends on, where the suggestions coming from so i've got to do certain things to make sure people can trust me more people can listen to me a lot more in, in the field that you're in because of certain things and because you do certain things and act in a certain way do you ever notice that people can can do that outside the business arena as well like if you're going out with friends or you go into a networking event do people tend to use these things sort of outside of the business arena as well Oh, totally. Yeah, of course they do. And, and I think it's, you know, you, you could look at it in terms of networking, you could look at it in dating, you could look at it in terms of friendships, you know, they're, they're t within a friendship circle, there tends to be someone that's more influential than the others. Well, how do they get to that influential? Well, it probably means that they've got a track record of influencing people where everyone benefits. Well, that's a good person to follow if they're doing things that everyone benefits from. Mm -hmm. um, equally in a dating thing you know the idea that how someone smells dresses presents themselves their body language doesn't influence how they're going to be perceived and therefore what can happen with that 
you know perception is ridiculous you know we're all humans we're constantly evaluating people so the the the, the key thing really is you know hypnosis is using communication um, in all its ways, not just verbal communication, but body language, tonality, to influence something um, that is beneficial for the individual. But outside of working with a hypnosis client, you know, when I buy property, for example, I'm using exactly the same approaches to negotiate the very best price for that property so I can get it below market value. You know, if I'm interviewing someone, then I'm asking them questions and I want to see what their nonverbal, what their micro expressions are telling me, not just, you know, so if I say, you know, um, you know, are you the kind of person that if you're feeling a bit, a bit, you know, kind of tired or hung over that you would, you would call in as a sick day. Now I know that consciously they're going to say, no, I would never do that, but I'm paying attention to the nonverbal communication. <laughs> um, so I get to make better decisions. So the idea that I'm going to learn all these things, and only use them in the realm of hypnosis would be idiotic. You know, if things work, use them, you know, in the same way that, you know, if a doctor knows how to do certain treatments and then someone is kind of ill on a plane, they're not going to say, Hey, I'm not working now, so I'm not going to use it. <laughs> they're going to use their skills. Of course they should. Um, you know, so it, it is one of those things that, you know, if, if things are, I'm a big fan of, you know, and that, that's where NLP, which is also, I'm a big student of NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, it, it comes from modeling excellence. You want to find patterns, you want to find strategies, you want to find beliefs that are very useful, very effective. And you know if they're effective. This is the great thing about business is that, you know, it, it, it doesn't know gender, it doesn't know age, it doesn't know experience, it doesn't know skin color. You know, if you make good choices, if you do good, then you're going to be rewarded by that and if you don't then you you're going to fail in business and and i i'm a big fan of environments that are very brutal but you know if you do well you're rewarded and if you're not then you know you could be destroyed but that's what makes life exciting you know you've got to seek out those kind of areas and unfortunately in a lot of corporations in a lot of institutions there's there's too much of people following what they should do and, and, and what would be nice to do. And it's kind of like, well, in Premier League football, you know, it is, you know, the, the highest paid football players are the ones that get the best results. The team that wins over a season isn't by luck. It's because they're producing the best results. And, and I would encourage anyone to put themselves in environments where it's harshly based on how competent and how good you are. You know, if I was a bad hypnotherapist, I wouldn't have any clients. If I was bad in business, I wouldn't have, you know, a successful business. If I was bad in investing, I wouldn't have any assets, you know, seek out those environments that are, you know, completely, um, you know, completely transparent and fair, depending on, are you good or not? I think they're, they're good environments to seek out. It's a very interesting um, side note where you brought up, that that side of things as well whereby it's based on merit it's based on how good you are and a bit of a comment on on the football the football point when, when you realize that everyone on the pitch is good someone that stands out as being amazing in comparison to people that are also amazing like you, some people don't realize that some people don't like if you play football for the sunday league there's two that are really good 
And it's like, well, yeah, but it's because we're awful. Like, it is, it, they look good, you know? But if you're, if you're playing for the, the Premiership football, you've got the pressure, you've got sponsors, you've got media, you've got social media, you've got people watching, you've got the fact that other people are trying to stop you as well. It's like, it's some people don't realise how hard the sport actually is until they're on the pitch. And um, the, amount of, the amount of arguments that we used to get is like, I would have scored that. And it's like, you, you really wouldn't. You, you would probably have tripped over your own shoes trying to get into that same position, you know? And some people don't realize how difficult it is to keep yourself focused, keep your composure, do all those things and still actually perform. Because some people talk about just the mental side and just the mental game and mindset's very important, but it's one of those things where it doesn't matter how easy the path is because of how you perceive it, because of what the thoughts you've had, because of what things have been suggested to you over the years, it doesn't matter how easy it is, you've still got to actually walk it, haven't you? You've still got to walk the path no matter how easy or straightforward it is. So talk, talk to us a bit about... The, the potential differences or the potential results that we can get. Think, talk a bit about, okay, if we do this process that like you mentioned, use an element of confusion or distraction or to try to get people a bit more suggestible. And then you talk about things like latching the change thing, the thing that you go in with, the suggestion you go in with, latching it onto an emotion because emotions might have an impact on how how we take it on, you know, whether we take it on board or not. What are the potential results of it? Are they drastic? Are they like, sort of smaller over time? What's that sort of process like with the person going through it? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the, the, the emotion bit's important because neural pathways are linked to emotion. Um, so, you know, the, the, there's a phenomenon called um, flashbulb or light bulb memory. Um, so certain key moments in history, 9-11, for example, you know, or Princess Diana dying, people know exactly where they were at that particular point because it's, it's a very emotive, you know, symbolic um, time. The, the, the toolkit, and there are so many different techniques to cultivate change. Rapport needs to be there. You know, you, you, you want to be very precise in terms of what, where the client's at and where they want to get to and then use the right tool for the job and then have that constant feedback loop so you're testing what works and what doesn't until, until it, it produces the outcome that they want. But the results can be phenomenal, you know, and, and if I look at my own example, I was my very first client, I couldn't leave my apartment, I literally couldn't go outside. And then I went from and you know, I would, if I had to public speak in front of two or three people, I used to get this horrible red rash all down my neck and my face and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, and now I can, you know, and regularly do speak in front of hundreds of people. Um, you know, I, I do uh, a lot of things, you know, I, um, it's a weird thing in terms of the level of transformation. I, I was afraid to climb a ladder or climb a tree. And then I did a skydive, you know, the, the level of transformation, it looks magical. You know, I've, I've had rooms full of people. I mean, you follow me on social media. So you see these people yeah. lifelong phobics of, of spiders, and then they're holding massive tarantulas, you know, and that's, that's over a, a few, a few hours. Um, I've worked with people addicted to, very hard, very addictive drugs like, you know, crack or cocaine or, you know, even things like nicotine and sugar, you know, these are highly addictive substances and, and people have become completely free of these um, things. Um, in, in terms of weight loss, I've had people that are 
you know, so overweight that they need frames or kind of walking sticks to kind of help them get in and out of chairs and things like that to, to run in like not even half marathons, but full marathons, you know, it, it, the, the level of transformation is incredible, but sometimes people look at hypnosis and thinks it's, think it's something that's going to happen to them rather than with them. So the metaphor that I use when I'm working with clients is I say, look, you know, I want you to imagine that you're on a, on a bike. Um, and that bike, um, you know, I want you to imagine that it has stabilizers on. Okay. So you don't know how to ride a bike, but this bike has stabilizers. You're not going to fall off. And I said, right, how fast are you going to go if you don't pedal? And they go, well, not, not at all. And I say, and even if you do pedal, are you going to make sure that you go in the right direction? You know, if you, if you never steer and they say, oh, no, no, you would need to steer. And I say, right. The hypnosis is the stabilizers on the bike. Okay. It supports you, but your actions are you pedaling. Okay. And your decisions are you steering the bike. Now with those stabilizers, you're not going to fall off and you're going to be able to make way more progress than you were before, but the stabilizers doesn't ride the bike for you. Okay. And, and that metaphor really helps them to understand that because sometimes people, you know, the, the biggest question that people ask about hypnosis is, well, does it work? Okay. Well, if I ask you the question, <laughs> do stabilizers on a bike work? Well, yeah, stabilizers on a bike work in the sense that it stops a bike from falling down. Okay. But does it make the bike go forward? Well, no, it doesn't. You know, you still, and, and, and that's a really important thing that anyone doing hypnosis needs to understand is that it's not a passive experience. It's a collaborative experience, you know, and, and, and if they, if they use it in the spirit that it's intended, that it kind of, it enables them to do more than they were able to do themselves. Um, then it's incredibly powerful, but don't expect it to, you know, do what you kind of see on stage hypnosis shows where someone's like zombified and they just kind of do that thing. You know, it, that that's not really how hypnosis works and you wouldn't want it to work that way because no. you would want to own the experience. And, and I say, right, you know, I'm not going to hypnotize you to lose weight. I'm going to hypnotize you to follow beliefs and strategies that will enable you to lose weight. And then, then they're kind of on board with how it works. Same thing with phobias. So I can rewire the pathways, but fundamentally you're going to have to test your ability to go outside of your comfort zone long enough to know that this fear was an illusion all the time, but you're going to have to reach the edge of that experience to know that you can handle it. And when you've handled it once, then you can handle it forever but I'm not doing it to them or for them. I'm doing it with them. I like the analogy of the, the stabilizers as well. And um, I like how it's still down to the person to change their, their actions, right? I mean, most people would change their actions if they were riding a bicycle with stabilizers compared to if they weren't. So I think that that naturally, that naturally would happen anyway, you know, thanks to hypnosis and the work that you do. You give enough people stabilizers, everyone's gearing up for a race, right? So they wouldn't go anywhere if, if they didn't have those stabilizers. So, yeah, no, I can definitely see, see that happening. Um, the thing that you brought up was you realized that the, the phobia was an illusion all along. Does that not bring up the idea then that most of it is a placebo effect anyway? 
just mostly for the, the people listening, just in case someone has that thought, right? Like, oh, so it doesn't really work when you just convince people that the fear wasn't real to begin with. How, how would you sort of have that conversation around the idea of the fact that it's just a placebo? Yeah, well, there's two different things. I mean, the, the placebo effect, for anyone that doesn't know what the placebo effect, when, when kind of... Um, researchers are measuring the effectiveness of any drug for example um, they'll compare it to something which is a placebo so if they're testing a drug they'll have a tablet that has no medical substances in there at all or if it's an injection they'll have just saline water so we know that sometimes the expectancy that someone's taking a tablet or an injection itself increases um, changes people get better just from a placebo so we know that placebos are very powerful um hypnosis has got a very powerful placebo element you know if if i said i'm going to do guided meditation with you or if i said i'm going to hypnotize you um the hypnosis would be more effective than the guided meditation because of the associations you have with hypnosis even if i did exactly the same thing the hypnosis would be more effective so we do know that um, the placebo effect is a powerful placebo effect when it comes to fears and, and, and phobias, um, it, it's a really strange thing in the sense that for a lot of the, the time, the, the reaction is not proportionate to the risk. So for me, I label fear as the evaluation and anxiety of the symptoms. So you can't argue that someone's heart rate is kind of like 170 beats per minute, even though they're not exercising. That's factual. You know, if, if someone's heart's racing, that's true. You can take um, blood tests so you can see the amount of adrenaline in their blood. All these things that are linked to anxiety is completely real. But that doesn't mean the thing that they are thinking about that is causing the anxiety is real. And, and I'll, I'll, you know, I had a, a client that had a fear of snakes and, and she lived in Australia and there are bigger, more dangerous snakes in Australia than there are in the UK. Um, she came over to London and, and, I, and I said, look, this has been worrying you for a while. How often do you think about snakes? And she said, I think about snakes all the time. And I said, and what happens when you think about snakes? And she said, ah, oh, you know, I, I get tense and I cry, my heart's racing. And I said, right, I get that. How many times have you actually seen a snake in the last year? Okay. She'd seen one. <laughs> she was, she, that anxiety was absolutely real, mm -hmm. but it was inside her head um that what was causing it the actual snake that she said and i said had have you ever seen what you thought was a snake uh and it wasn't and she said yeah there was a broom handle and i thought the broom handle was a snake and i freaked out and it turns out it was the broom handle so what i'm proving to them is that anxiety is real but quite often the thing that causes the anxiety isn't and um, and i've got enough experience and enough anecdotes you know i'll tell them a story of all these times that these people that have had a lifelong fear of spiders finally touch the tarantula and they're building themselves up and they're building themselves up. And when the tarantula actually goes on their hands, they're expecting their expression to be either, oh my God, what the fuck is happening? Or they're thinking, you know, wow, I've, I've beaten it. Do you know what their expression actually is? It is confusion that for years they've been building it up to be so big. And then when the spider, this massive spider is actually there, they're like, was that it? <laughs> it's almost disappointment. Yeah, but the yeah. thing that they've been avoiding for so long is, is so 
you know, uh, underwhelming. But it reaches that point because I've already made some of the key changes at that, at that point. Um, so, you know, it, it is a mind game. And I use lots of different metaphors. You know, I say, look, you know, fear, fear is like shadows. Action is like light. You know, how much shadows can exist in a bright room? And they're like, well, none. It's like, oh, okay. So action kind of reveals that, you know, it was a, a mirage all along. And it is for a lot of people. Um, but, but, but it is a game. So it's about using it. And, and for me, I'm, I'm constantly reminding them of a convincer strategy. And that is, I say, look, what would you have to do for you to believe that your phobia is gone? And then whatever they do, my job is to get them to do that thing because then that's evidence that their phobia is gone. So it's, it's kind of like a, a psychological trick of the mind. But the key thing is like over the last few years, I've probably helped about 500 people be free of their phobias forever. And they are so grateful and they don't mind that this whole thing was just a, a mirage to begin with because the anxiety, which is real, goes away. And they're like, well, so long as I don't have that horrible experience all the time, I'm so grateful anyway. Does that make sense? It's, it, is a, it is a mind game, but it's a mind game that has real consequence. Yeah, and um, I can definitely picture myself doing that a few times, but without hypnosis. Like I picture it as such a big thing inside my own head and I've got, oh my God, what if this, what if that is going to be horrific? It's going to be horrible. How on earth am I going to manage to do that? And then you do it and then it's like, huh, was that it? So I've definitely felt, I've felt the, the underwhelming side myself over the years. And I think a, a big part of it can come down to, it is the expectations. It is the, you think or you assume it's going to be a certain way. It's going to be a certain, you know, something will happen if you do it. And when you realize that it's not, you go, that's not too bad. It's, it's a strange thing. Like when, when the media started calling me a phobia guru and, and it's because I could get rid of phobias in a single session, I, I had a real imposter syndrome about it. And it's kind of like, I'm not sure how I feel about this. And I, and I remember evaluating and I had this, this one irrational fear left and that was doing stand-up comedy. And, and this was someone who had social anxiety. So just people themselves terrified me. And then public speaking, it's kind of like, well, there's an audience evaluating me. But then stand-up comedy was the next level up. And I kind of said to myself, look, if I can get over this fear of stand-up comedy, I'm happy to embrace the, the phobia guru kind of name and I'll, I'll adopt it and take it as my own. And um, the first time that I did stand-up comedy, it was in an East End pub in uh, Bethnal Green. Um, there's a, um, there's a, I forget his name, Mark, someone who's a, a quite a, no, Lee Hurst is a comedian. He has this big comedy club in, in East London. There was a hundred people in the audience. I had five minutes of material that I had to prepare. And me knowing everything I know about anxiety and fear, I had so much adrenaline before I went up there. You know, my heart was still beating. And, uh, and I just knew that it, it was a game. And if I, if I could just do it, then the fear would get reduced and reduced and reduced. And it did. I did it. And I had so much adrenaline. It felt so good. I was so proud of myself. Um, and then I thought, no, this, this could be luck. So I did it again and again. And, and I've done about, you know, probably about 30 stand-up comedy gigs, not because I want to be a stand-up comedian. I really don't, you know, but I, I am so obsessed about getting comfortable doing things that are outside of my comfort zone until my comfort zone expands. And, and, and the first time that 
I actually got heckled while I was doing live stand-up comedy. You know, my reaction was completely the opposite as what I thought. I thought, right, I'm going to fall to bits here. They found me out, you know, but actually I just flipped it on them. Everyone was laughing at them and, and it was one of my best, you know, kind of gigs I did. So it, it is an illusion, but you have to be willing to face the abyss to realize that it's an illusion. You know, it's, and, and there is a fine line between fearless and reckless, you know, if, if I just did stand-up comedy with no preparation, no material, no kind of um, anything, that would be reckless and I'd be annihilated and rightly so. Equally, you know, if I convince myself that I can fight, you know, and I go straight into an octagon, you know, and do mixed martial arts just because I've dealt with the anxiety but not got good at fighting, that's reckless. So yeah. I don't want to say that all fear is irrational. Sometimes it's to tell you that you need to do a lot more preparation, but there will be moments that you are more than enough prepared. And then it becomes changing how you feel about that particular thing to actually do it, to realize that the fear can't exist when, when you take action consistently. And it, and it is a mind game, but luckily I've played that mind game now enough for, for 20 years so I can help other people play it as well. It's interesting that you brought up the, the idea of being good at the thing. You know, if you're going to do something without any preparation at all, just because you've gotten over the, the fear of it, you could still not get the result that you want. You know, you could still end up struggling and having a hard time, not because you're no longer afraid, but because you're not actually good at the skill of the thing. And you oh, sometimes it just takes practice. Yeah, totally. I mean, if, if I hypnotize someone to um, believe that they were an excellent helicopter pilot um, to the extent that they started flying a helicopter, you know, they're going to die and maybe other people are going to die as well. And, and, and I'll use the stand-up comedy example again, even though I had the confidence to do it, I still wasn't very good, you know, and in those first 30 um, gigs that I did, you know, at least four or five of them were very unpleasant. You know, it was, you know, I died, you know, and, and it was, but, but the thing is, you know, that if, if I would have had that bad experience and then kind of thought, right, I'm never doing that again, the fear would have come back massively. But for me, it was a case of saying, well, what do I need to improve? And, and I had all of my stand-up comedy gigs videoed and then I would watch them again and again and think, ah, that's why, mm -hmm. because the material was crap or because my tonality or I looked nervous or my body language, whatever it was. So as long as you treat these things as a feedback loop and, and you're not willing to let one bad experience define you, then you can get, get good. Like nobody, nobody got good at, at walking on their first attempt or reading on their first attempt. Sometimes you've got to do something a lot to actually get good at it. And that's also where confidence comes from as well. Well, that, that's an amazing way to finish off because, you know, a lot of it does come down to the mind to get started, but then you still got to actually get good at the thing as well, because that will breed confidence just as much as thinking that you can do it can as well. So I like the way that you, you pointed that out. Where can we learn more about you, Adam? Where can we go to check out what you're up to? Absolutely. So if, uh, if you are interested in weight loss, you can go to hypnoslimming.com. If you have an addiction, you can go to addictionexperts.co.uk. If you have phobias or a severe anxiety, you can go to phobiaguru.com. If you want to hear my podcast where I interview some of the, the greatest minds on the planet, um, then you go to Modern Mindset on any of the podcast platforms. And if you want to hear real life hypnosis that I do with real clients from my Harley Street practice, 
then just search for The Hypnotist on any podcast platform and you can actually hear me in action. Awesome, Adam. Well, thanks for being on the guest, on the guest, on the show. Uh, it was amazing to have you on and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you so much, Mike. There we have it. Adam was amazing. Lots of things you talked about there regarding hypnotism, the process, all those things. I made loads of notes. I hope you did as well. Make sure you do click subscribe so that you can check out all the other episodes and the future episodes as well. If you feel compelled to, leave a review of the podcast wherever you are tuning in. And I look forward to speaking to you all again very, very soon.